Discover Guide, and more. Make us your first stop and make the most of your advertising budget. Stop in at 17 Bridge Square in downtown Northfield between the chamber and the barbershop or give us a call, 507-663-7937. By all means, graphics, we're here to help. Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, and you've joined us here for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. We are recording from our studios in beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects from neighborhood concerns all the way up to municipal, state, and even national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Bruce Moreland, one of your hosts for this morning's show, and the man sitting next to me is my co-host, Joe Moravich. Sorry, Joe. <laughs> or Moravchik. Moravchik, yeah, I'm... <laughs> Bruce, we're joined today by Ann Mavity, Executive Director of the Minnesota Housing Partnership. Our topic for discussion is affordable housing. Ms. Mavity has a, over 30 years of experience in affordable housing, capacity building, and community development. Among her varied experience, she has worked on a congressional subcommittee on housing, provided technical assistance and underwriting at CSH, creating permanent supportive housing policies and projects, and led development and organizing for Beacon Interfaith Housing Collaborative. Ms. Mavity served for 11 years as a city council member in St. Louis Park, leaving that post in October 2020. She has since moved back to Minneapolis, where her career in housing began many years ago as executive director for Central Neighborhood. Anne has a double BA degree in government and Slavic languages from Lawrence University and a master's in public policy from Georgetown University. Ann Mavity, welcome to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio. Well, thank you so much to both of you, and especially for highlighting housing. Such an important issue, so I'm delighted to be here. And we're happy you're here with us in studio today. And before we begin our discussion on today's program topic of affordable housing, I want to ask you about your experience in Russia. <laughs> during, my experience, or during my research, I read that you lived in Russia during the 90s and speak the language... That had to be a real time of transition and turmoil there. Tell us a little bit about how you got to Russia and what you did in Russia in the 90s. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I was a uh, wide-eyed, optimistic uh, young person who wanted to save the world. So I was really looking at, at that point, the Soviet Union, uh, yeah. uh, what was happening over there and trying to create world peace and all of those great issues. So I uh, went to, I had the opportunity after majoring in Russian, I was already doing housing issues, but had the opportunity to get to Russia to really work on free and fair elections. Mm -hmm. uh, also had an opportunity, which I, I can talk a little about, to do a little bit on housing in Russia as well. An interesting thing about that is that for Russia, it was all about privatizing housing because all of it was publicly owned as opposed to the right. other direction sometimes that we see. But, uh, but yeah, it was an exciting time where 
elections were happening for the first time where people had an opportunity to actually vote for, at one point, there were 41 parties on the ballot instead of a single communist party to vote for. And I would start some of my trainings with uh, activists as we were trying to teach them how to engage, have a voice in democracy. I'd start these trainings and I'd say, who's the mayor's boss? And they'd all say, Yeltsin. I'm like, no, you get to hire and fire the mayor by your vote. And that was a that was a mind opening experience for folks. It didn't it was doing fine when I left, for the record. <laughs> you left him in good condition. I left it in good condition. Putin uh, came later. Better better than you found it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, okay. Um so today our 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 policy subject is affordable housing, as yeah. you suggested. And um, and what, what path led you to where you are today? How, uh, and could you introduce us to the Minnesota Housing Partnership? Certainly. Well, let me start with the Minnesota Housing Partnership. We are a statewide organization that has been around for uh, 35 years. Uh, and we convene housing practitioners, housing experts, housing advocates to help drive housing solutions locally and at the statewide level particularly, as well as uh, helping convene those solutions for our federal congressional delegation. Uh, We work in three areas. One is we provide research to help inform policies. So we are committed to being data-driven. You can go to our website at mhponline.org and find things like the State of the State's Housing Report that we do every two years. The next one will be coming out in just a week or two. We do district profiles, so you can look and see what's the housing situation in your community uh, by county. Uh, We also do specialized research on topics of import. Maybe we can talk about one of them we just produced on rural housing and some of the challenges, particularly for rural housing. So we use all that research to then drive housing solutions and convene folks to at the state level um, across the state. And it is an exciting year for solutions uh, that are happening right now at the state level in real time. And then finally, we also provide direct technical assistance to rural communities and to Native nations, not just in Minnesota, but actually around the country. So, uh, so for communities that might not have that expertise on staff because they're small, uh, like Janesville, we're working with Janesville, Minnesota right now, a small community of less about 2,000 folks to help them address some of their housing challenges. Wow. Uh, that's kind of a large range when you think about it then, and, and lots of different uh, objectives from those different uh, mm-hmm. levels, uh, for sure. Um, you, you, you're working in affordable housing, and the question I want to back up a little bit is, I'm going to ask how we got to this place. And I'm going to kind of review what my perspective on the mm-hmm. history is, and then you can correct me and, and give me the real truths. From my perspective, when I was looking into this, I, I saw that the federal government really started getting involved in housing perhaps in the 30s just before the the or during the great depression they started playing in the in the housing markets uh and since then we've transitioned over to where we now have housing and urban development a whole arm of the government dedicated to to housing and and I'm curious do you know how how much of their how much of the federal budget is is huds offhand a very, very small proportion. Okay. That's we actually have data about the, over the last 30 to 40 years, the increase in the federal budget broadly, which has occurred, is not reflected in any increases 
in housing investments. So those have stayed flat mm-hmm. while other investments have increased. So actually it's been, uh, it's surprisingly little. Okay, good. Um, the, no, that's not good. Well, I mean, <laughs> well, from a conservative perspective, it's good. Fair enough. Uh, we'll, we'll get there in, in, in a few. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to ask about a little bit is um, the, the affordable housing issue sometimes mm-hmm. is labeled the uh, workforce housing. Mm-hmm. And we used to see things that we called factory towns where the, the, the company basically owned the housing and it was just like one step up from being a sharecropper, but you were working in a factory. Is that did that was that model failing when the government started playing with uh, the thing with its programs? Was that a failing model, or was that working okay? Do you think? Well, what I would say is that housing is an interesting industry, and into it because it is impacted by the federal government, as you've outlined but also by local government and by state government. And in fact, the majority of even affordable housing is produced by the private sector, so unregulated. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's such a complex system that has so many levers that are changing it. I think the federal government's engagement in housing broadly has really had two paths. One has been, to your point, about investments to help stimulate and support the growth of housing for workforce, for all kinds of things. In many ways, public housing really developed as a, uh, not just for the lowest income, but for moderate income working folks as well, to help support folks. I think with the Moynihan Report in the 60s and 70s, what we were seeing is that a concentration of the lowest income folks in public housing actually shifted what the original purpose of that was and may have actually stimulated some of the challenges that we see. But um, workforce housing is a key issue, and we're seeing that around Minnesota, particularly when you get to smaller communities that might have large uh, employers, that it is absolutely critical for them to attract and maintain workers to ensure that they have a thriving workforce and if there's nowhere to live they can't do that so we've actually had folks from uh one community out it was in thief river falls an employer who heard about a housing summit and the hr department called us up and said can you get some of that housing for us because we need some workers Mm -hmm. so that's the kind of conversations i think are going around especially in small towns um as i mentioned earlier when when we were talking before the show i I, i'm a planning commissioner and i know that's one of the points i often try and make as I say, can we really? Is this housing commuter housing? Are there jobs that will pay for this house, or do you have to commute like to the cities from Northfield or to Rochester, like I used to do, to be able to afford to live here? And so that's always an it's an issue. Which comes first? You know, do we build houses and hope the factories come, or do we build factories and hope the housing comes? And the answer is, I think we build whichever we can get somebody to come in and build. Planning commissions have a real tough time. Uh, they they can kind of set some rules, but they can't override and, and make them, they can't make people come in and build stuff. It just doesn't work that way. Right, and I think you know again part of what we're seeing broadly is a uh, a squeeze and almost an economic uh, failure of the market to produce all the housing that is needed to support business growth and business vitality, especially 
in these smaller communities. Yeah. One great example, if I may, is uh, in War Road, Minnesota. Marvin Windows, a great Minnesota uh, uh, company, they are growing amazing, you know, great guns, and but they cannot bring in enough employees because there's no housing. So they have worked with the local city um, uh, government to say we would need 300 more units of housing in our town of 1800 in War Road, Minnesota. Um, 300 new units of housing in three years. Now they are on track to do that. They mm. built 91 units in year one, so they are on track to do that. But they have recognized that companies together with local government, businesses, we all need to work together to create more housing more intentionally if we're going to keep businesses and create that um, healthy environment. Okay. So let me, let me pick a particular milestone in history that I think is going to be interesting, and mm-hmm. that is what happened. Because A lot of people look at what happened in the 80s under the Reagan administration as being kind of a kickoff for today's homelessness problem. Mm-hmm. And we know that homelessness is often conflated with mental illness and lots of other things. Can you kind of describe what happened in the 80s for us? Absolutely. Well, lots of things happened. But, uh, you know, as is often the case, well-intended policies can often have consequences that were unintended or unexpected. So as uh, the housing policy with the with uh, Ronald Reagan coming in and the team looking at both trickle-down economics, but also really trying to say we don't want to uh, have folks that have mental health issues or others in these you know, institutions. We want people living in the community. So that was a very positive step to say let's make sure that folks have that same opportunity even if they have some kinds of disabilities. The challenge was they closed down and defunded all the congregate settings without actually funding proactively enough of the opportunities in community for folks to move to. And so all of a sudden, in 1981, when that policy went into place, things closed down, there weren't other community options, and what we started seeing was homelessness really uh, expanding dramatically um, in those days. Mm. Now, there was also some creative uh, policymaking around housing that has probably been the most impactful policy um, in generations, which was in 1986, the uh, low-income housing tax credit was created uh, in the Tax Reform Act of 1986. And that completely transformed how we create affordable housing by leveraging private sector equity investors. So it's private money that gets invested into housing that then is required, and they get a tax credit to do that, but then that's required to have some uh, restrictions on rent levels and such so that lower-income folks can access that. And so that has completely transformed how most of the um, housing is created in the United States. And by the way, you were talking about HUD. Do you know what the largest federal agency is that, re- that uh, produces housing? And regulates housing? Military? It's the IRS. Because Hmm. of this low-income housing tax credit. So the largest housing program in the United States is not run by HUD. It's actually run by the IRS because it's it's done through tax credits. 
the tax credits or the the mortgage interest deduction or more than I mean is that separate from what you're thinking of there? Well, the mortgage interest deduction is an interesting topic. <laughs> I, folks, you should see her light up. <laughs> I think I found a nerve here. <laughs> well, I mean that's the other question. So if I ask you, there's so many myths around housing, and hopefully today we can break down some of those. So when we think about who gets the largest amount of housing assistance in the United States of America, typically what do we think about? About who's getting that? It's our, it's our lowest income folks yeah. is what people assume. Right. By the numbers, uh, it's actually our highest income families because of the home mortgage interest deduction. And the way it's set up is this, is that every eligible homeowner who is eligible to, to take the home mortgage interest deduction gets it. And recently that was adjusted at the federal level um, so that the very highest um, uh, amounts did not get um, that deduction. But typically, everyone gets it. Now, when you think about rental assistance... What people used to think about as a Section 8 program or housing mm -hmm. vouchers, only one out of every four eligible households gets that because it's budget limited. So there's no budget limit on home mortgage interest deduction, but there is on rental assistance. So our lowest income folks actually are receiving about four to five times less housing assistance than our highest income households. So I think that's an, it's a myth about who gets housing assistance. It's interesting, and, and it's, uh, it's a politically sensitive issue, I would think, because of the, the disparity there. Absolutely. I mean, the home mortgage interest deduction was created to help stimulate and encourage and make accessible home ownership. So, it, it, again, it had a good purpose. I think the question that has not been revisited closely enough uh, is how much is that still needed in terms of rebalancing uh, what kinds of assistance are needed along the continuum of housing options and opportunities. I, I, I'm going to throw a personal note in here. I was at the right age in the 80s when all of that discussion was going on about, mm -hmm. and it was, I mean, that was when we, we saw things like uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest kind of highlighting how bad an institutional situation was. Mm -hmm. And so everybody was excited to get people out of the, the institutions. And the fact that we just opened the doors and kind of booted them out, that, that's an example of short-sightedness for yeah. sure. Anyway. And, it, and I will say, too, our state is under a consent decree called Olmstead, which is happening across the country as well, because still today, 30 years later maybe 40 years later, we are still um, under a court decree to implement community options for folks. It is hard work. And again, let's talk a little bit about why. Um, because everyone needs housing. It's mm -hmm. a basic human need. Every person needs housing. And every um, and we need a lot of different options because people have different housing desires and needs. And we're not delivering on that as a broad community at this point. Well, you mentioned that uh, we, we have a very low proportion of public, and you compared it with Russia, where all the housing was owned. Um, <laughs> in European democracies, up to 30% of housing is publicly owned. Yeah, they so, call it social housing. And, and we've experimented with social housing here in the, in the U.S., but the problem has always been that it tends to tighten. It, it tends to concentrate 
poor people. And, you know, that's not a good thing. Concentration of poverty is a bad idea, I think, right? Right. right. I, you know, what I would say is that um, initially, as I was noting earlier, when when social housing, public housing was conceived, it was seen as for the workforce broadly. And then as folks, as policymakers said, well, we want to make sure that our resources are being used in a targeted strategic way, rules were happening and requirements and eligibility requirements were happening that created this problem of concentration of poverty. So suddenly higher income folks, or if you started working and had a higher income, you had to move out of that community. Um, so instead of having a mixed income community, um, our policies were saying you're only eligible in certain ways. And so I think I always see this as policies have created the situation we're in. Policies can lead us into solutions out of it as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, it sounds like we have an affordable housing problem, both urban and rural. Um, can we talk a little bit about what affordable means? If you could get in, into cost burden and severe cost burden, what, is it, what, are, what are we talking about when we're talking about afford, affordable housing? Absolutely, because what's affordable to me is going to be different than what's affordable to you than to any one of our neighbors. You know, back in the 70s, the federal government created a standard. It started at 25% of your income, but it's now at 30% of your income being used for housing is sort of the standard that's now used to say that should leave you enough in a family budget to pay for other essential needs, things like food and health care and transportation and all those other things. When you are paying more than 30% of your income for housing, we talk about that as being cost burdened. Okay. And it just means that, that you're paying more for your housing than your family budget would allow for, which means you're making really hard decisions yeah. about what else is, not, is getting cut. And at the point that you're paying more than half of your income for housing, we call that severely cost burdened. Hmm. And what I would say is that in almost every county, actually in every county in Minnesota, we have... Uh, Households that are cost burdened and severely cost burdened, and in the majority of counties, we have uh, 30 to 50 percent of the households that are cost burdened. So it is a challenge in every corner of the state hmm. uh, that folks are paying too much for housing. Um, let, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the impediments to constructing more affordable housing building codes, zoning laws, permits, fees. We're in an economy right now where material costs are higher, labor costs are higher. We've got shortages shortages in labor. Mm -hmm. If Anne, could you talk a little bit about impediments to, to constructing more affordable housing? Absolutely. Um, you're absolutely right that right now the economics of uh, creating more housing is challenging and it's one of the key drivers of the fact that we are not producing enough housing. There are so many components to that, uh, but the bottom line is is that it's a math problem. That it basically costs more to build a home than what the household that could afford that home yeah, could pay. Hmm. 
So it's we, we have a gap. And that's what so much of our state solutions are being uh, targeted to is how do we fill that gap? So we have some very creative bipartisan approaches like Senator Dreheim, who uh, serves the uh, St. Peter Mankato area. Um, he has been really focused on home ownership and trying to fill that gap of affordability to get folks into home ownership because especially entry-level homes right. that would be at the lowest income. We used to have, you know, this. 50s and 60s and 70s, there was just a massive amount of creation of entry-level homes. Yes. Right now, those are not uh, cost-effective for builders to build without additional assistance, which means that new households, kids coming out of college or starting to form families, there's very few options. So all those costs, there's land costs, there's uh, certainly the whole regulatory environment from the city and permitting, time is money. So mm -hmm. if it takes time to get through all these processes, that adds cost to this as well. Mm -hmm. One of the things I talk about oftentimes is with land. You know, if you have a, a piece of land that costs $100,000 and you put a single family home on that, that homeowner is paying $100,000 plus whatever it costs to build a home. If you have a piece of land that at $100,000 and you put a duplex on it, well, suddenly you've cut that cost to... Uh, two families only paying 50000 each mm -hmm. or put four homes on there, whether it's individual homes on smaller lots or a townhome or however you fourplex. Now they're only paying $25,000 for those land costs. So all of there's creative ways to think about how to bring the cost down, but there's no question that COVID exacer exacerbated some of the supply chain issues, the labor issues, in addition to some of these um, costs that we are seeing that drive housing up. Certainly the uh, planning commissions like I'm on who want to build these suburban sprawl neighborhoods, you know, everybody wants to have a large lot so they can have grass and all of that. Uh, you know, that goes against the idea of affordability because then you're paying for a lot of space that you're not really using. You're also building bigger homes. And in the auto industry, we see that we get a lot more SUVs than we do small cars because there's more profit margin on a bigger and is that a same problem in the housing market, that the bigger homes, the mansions? Uh, I won't go to the McMansions. Those are a different class. But uh, certainly bigger homes are more popular and more profitable. Is that right? Absolutely. And, and, it, and it's why that while we have a housing supply uh, cha uh, get challenge, squeeze, it is particularly felt in the areas in which the market does not easily respond. So the folks, again, entry-level homeowners right. or um, some of our hardest-working low-wage workers, you could be working one or two jobs and still not be able to afford a home, um, which is why our policies and our assistance and strategies are really targeted to those areas where the market is not typically able to respond because of the economics and, and the math. And the math. And uh, the math. Yeah, I, f I forgot to tell you, I'm a mathematician. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things I saw on your website that I, or in, in your report that I thought was really interesting was this, that we'll go back to the cost burden idea. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk real quickly about that. I was surprised to see that, that Rice County and Blue Earth, Waseca, Steel, they are all uh, high burdened areas in the sense, of, I think you say 45 to 56 percent of renters are burdened. In those in our in our neighborhood, yep. uh, and the only other place that looks like that is up north in the Iron Range. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, is that, was that a surprise to you to see uh, that we're, we're that burdened out in the rural areas or is that kind of the normal way to, that things work out? Well, I don't want to accept any of it as normal. I think that I think we can do better. Okay. And what I would say is that uh, certainly as our populations age and folks are on fixed incomes, the squeeze of housing costs, which are not fixed, housing is accelerating far beyond what incomes uh, can afford. And because that gap is happening year over year over year, That's what people are feeling very much in their family budget. We know that creating affordability and access to homes in rural communities is uh, is a challenge. One of the things that you were talking earlier about some of the federal programs, uh, there is a Section 515 program uh, from the federal government specifically targeted to rural communities yeah, that was created about 50 years ago. And Minnesota was an early and enthusiastic adopter of that program. Those buildings created fourplexes, you know, 12plexes, up to 20 units. And sometimes in a community of 2,000 folks might be the only affordable option for elderly or disabled folks. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing is that those 40-year mortgages are up. And a lot of the folks that took advantage of them were just people and leaders in the community, people in the community who, who were able to do that. They're t- retired. They want to be done with these projects. And unpeeling those is really hard because, again, we want to retain those affordable units in our rural communities. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's one of our key challenges, actually, that we're working on uh, right now to try to retain those affordabilities of um, housing that's already here that people are living in. The existing housing is always, uh, it's just like my car. It's the, the, the cheapest house is the one you already own. Absolutely. And Even though investing in it, keeping it running, yeah, <laughs> you know, can, can cost a bit. And that's the other piece of no, knowing that housing is one of those things we have to keep well-maintained and investing in. And again, it doesn't always cash flow with the kind of rents that some of our lowest income folks, retired seniors, disabled folks, or even just hardworking families, their rents can't necessarily cover what it costs to um, keep some of these properties up, again, which is why we're looking for policy solutions. Right. For our audience, you're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Joe Moravchik. My co-host is Bruce Moreland. Our guest is Ann Mavity, Executive Director of the Minnesota Housing Partnership. We are discussing affordable housing. Ann, you were in Washington, D.C. this past Tuesday, May 2nd, invited to testify before Congress. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Yes. Uh, in Minnesota, we are fortunate that uh, Senator Tina Smith chairs the subcommittee on housing. And... Uh, For the first time in decades, she has introduced bipartisan legislation with her Republican colleague from South Dakota, Senator Rounds, to, uh, it's called the Rural Rural Housing Services Reform Act of 2023. And what I was just talking about with some of these Section 515 rural housing opportunities, 
We know that without changes to that program, we are losing these units to the private sector, or frankly, some of them are simply being torn down because they can't afford to maintain them. And so this legislation that I testified on um, to highlight some of the research that MHP has done together with the University of Minnesota, we recently released, you can find on our website, um, on this rural, these rural housing issues about how do we fix this program to make sure that we can preserve the housing that's already in, particularly our rural communities uh, across Minnesota. Interesting. I'm going to back or focus in on part of what you said there. It's bipartisan. Mm -hmm. I hope people realize that that is the most rewardable thing our politicians can do for us is be bipartisan because solutions that are monocultural, one party, uh, just don't have any legs. They They can't endure in the long run. Uh, were you surprised to see them being bipartisan, or is there, is that a... Well, I believe that housing, just like the air we breathe and the water we drink and the food we eat, housing is a basic human need. It doesn't have a partisan angle on it, right? Everyone needs a home. And while those homes might look different and the families might be in different circumstances, it is it is the uh, quintessential bipartisan issue. And so what we're seeing, certainly in Congress, are some of these bipartisan strategies, like we mentioned on this Rural Housing Services Reform Act, but also this low-income housing tax credit I mentioned earlier that was created back in 1986 that produces so much of the housing. It has worked effectively and we are trying to expand that by 50% to help create more than 10,000 more units of housing in Minnesota. And the entire congressional delegation in Minnesota, bipartisan, uh, previously, we're short one right now, but uh, previously had <laughs> supported this. Um, and so people understand, I think policymakers understand, and all of us um, on the streets understand everyone needs a home of some kind. And uh, this is absolutely bipartisan. We might have different ideas on how to get there in different ways, but, uh, but I'm very encouraged to see that's those approaches, both at the state level and at the federal level. Is there, do you think there's good integration between the states and the federal, or are they, are, do they communicate well, or are they kind of, I'm curious how, since you're in the inside of both in a way. Right. Well, what I would say is that uh, the, the federal government, certainly during COVID, you know, obviously, um, housing emerged as essential in ways that hadn't previously, I think, been fully understood. That when we knew that folks to stay healthy and keep our whole communities healthy, that folks needed a home um, and a stable home to be in. And so a lot of federal resources have come through to help that. Now, it hasn't always worked well. I mentioned that from the federal government with rental assistance, only one out of every four eligible households receives it. There's a huge effort at the state level now to create a state-level rental assistance program. We're in the last weeks of our state legislature. We'll see what emerges out of that. I'm very uh, excited about the possibilities in the past at the state level yeah, where we had spent uh, less than 0.6%. So 0.6, less than 1% of the state's budget is on housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that equals to about $125 million a year. 
This year, the budget targets are a billion dollars for housing. Now, a lot of that is one-time federal pass-through funding and other kinds of one-time surplus funding, and housing is a great deployment for that because you can build a a building, a home, and it'll be there for the next 50 years. It's a great investment. Uh, But we know that folks are working, for example, on a rental assistance program at the state level, partly because the federal government has really not um, fully funded the program that they intended. Okay. Um, I just wanted to comment quickly uh, in the 80s. I'm I'm sorry, in the aughts. I guess we can call it the aughts. Okay. uh, We had high hopes. The early 2000s. The early 2000s, yes. (laughs) Yeah, not the 19 aughts. Um, We we all had, there was a lot of political talk about how home ownership was the key to building family wealth. Mm -hmm. But the counterpoint to that was we developed some perverse incentives in a way that we were giving loans to people who didn't really have the income to justify the loans. And when all of that came tumbling down, if you've ever seen the, the movie The Big Short, where they dis- oh, you need to see that one. It'll, dis- it'll explain to you how a mortgage market that started dis- distancing the risk from the profit uh, led to a collapse because the, when the housing market collapsed, the way it collapsed was when some people couldn't afford their mortgages, it was not disconnected from other people not being able to afford this. Mm-hmm. So, and mm-hmm. it, it's mathematically an interesting problem, but it was an example where the politicians were all on board. Everybody should own their home. And when I compare that with the earlier discussion, we what Finland thirty percent, or in Europe mm-hmm. only you know thirty percent of mm-hmm. housing is public housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in the early aughts. We were pushing hard to get away from that. Uh, do you think that that's, we've learned a lesson from that? Or what, where do you think we are on that now? Well, I think just to separate some of those issues, I think the, uh, what happened in 2006, 7, 8, and the recession that it really drove was really about predatory lending. It was more about the system of financing that was extraordinarily predatory on uh, folks and was getting positioning people into homes that were to benefiting the investors, not benefiting the people trying to uh, create home ownership and that generational wealth that you're talking about. I think separately, there is a, a, a consensus that home ownership can be an extraordinary tool for generational wealth. And it's really one of the challenges is that, you know, we haven't yet talked about this, but you can't talk about the history. Of, you can't talk about housing without talking about uh, uh, racial discrimination that has uh, really shaped our entire housing system over years. So starting from the FHA program that really created the suburban communities mm-hmm. uh, after World War II, really trying to drive home ownership. But all those lending maps that the federal government created and said these are places where you can lend and places where you cannot lend are the same today in terms of uh, uh, racial uh, disparities. So they were saying if it's a high concentration of uh, African-American or other kinds of black and brown families, even back in the 50s, those maps, that's what our neighborhoods look like today. And that generational constraint... It's, has made Minnesota the worst in the nation on home ownership disparities. And so while we have fixed some of the laws, you know, that generational harm is still uh, occurring in families. So there's quite a bit of bipartisan effort 
to try to make sure that all households have access to home ownership and trying to create these kinds of models. Now, if I may, one more point on yeah. this is the Federal Reserve is coming out. The Federal Reserve of Minneapolis does great research around housing. They are coming out with a report uh, probably this week or next week that talks about that premium people pay for renting versus home ownership. And what they're finding is that you actually pay two to $300 more per month to rent than you would to own a home. But it's the ability to actually get approved and get into that home that tends to be the barrier. Mm-hmm. And again, the, uh, the outcomes that we're seeing are, um, are not equal across uh, sort of the impact across uh, that are creating these racial disparities. So great solutions, bipartisan efforts right now at the state <coughs> legislature to try to bridge some of those um, to make sure that that generational wealth path is available broadly. A couple questions. Yeah. Were you just talking about redlining, or is that a I different... was talking exactly about redlining. Okay. Sorry, I should have said redlining. No, I've seen that term. Yes. But... And the red line was literally the federal government has maps, and they literally had red lines yeah. around neighborhoods in which they would not allow government lending to occur. Right. And, those to, and the, one of the key factors was how many people, non-white population, ex- lived there. And those redlined maps can be put upon communities today, and they're almost exactly the same because housing is sticky, right? People live in neighborhoods. Mm. And it's, it's, it's what economists call as sort of a sticky thing, that, that people don't move just all of a sudden all mm. the time, right? It's, it's, it's your neighbors. It's your community. Yeah. It's your schools. It's where you work, and, and folks don't want to leave. Um, but again, our policies created... Uh, uh, some of the challenges, and that's why we are trying to uh, be smarter and reflective using data to say how can we have better policies that actually uh, give more opportunities to more families. I want to go back to Bruce's original thoughts. You had mentioned a movie <laughs> about the, called The Big Short. The Big Short, yes. My question related to that is, are institutional investors, the private equity firms, uh-huh. They're buying up single-family homes. Are they pricing out American families during this time of a housing shortage? Maybe it's a problem. Maybe it isn't. Maybe, it, but I do see some of that in my reading, where you have these uh, institutional investors buying these homes, I, drives up the cost of them, turning them into rentals. I think, from a local government perspective, from a community perspective, our neighborhoods. Our cities, our townships are stronger when people are invested in the community who live there. Whether that means they're Agreed. invested because they are homeowners, they're invested because they're business owners, they're invested yeah. because their kids are in the schools, whatever that is. The more folks are invested in the community, the stronger those communities are. So when we see institutional investors coming out of New York and, and the coasts bringing in money into the community... They are not invested in quality housing, in ensuring that there's good property management on site, ensuring uh, that there's even affordabilities, right, for folks. They are just looking at the profit margin, and I would say that can be a huge challenge to a strong, thriving community. Our attorney general, Keith Ellison, had filed a lawsuit uh, 
February of 2022 against, I think it's Brookhaven Homes. Uh, That's the investor out of Illinois. Who has bought up a lot of properties, particularly in specific neighborhoods in Minneapolis. Oh, okay. And that is having a hard, uh, uh, a negative impact on that. And it's really, it's about property management and quality housing and treating uh, renters uh, fairly. And so that's where I think the challenge is with these corporate investors. I think from your, Bruce, looking as a planning commissioner, from my former perch as a former city council member in a suburban community, we want folks invested in the community, and that's the best thing for our communities. Right. We, we, we know that one of the problems, as a former landlord, I know one of the problems I had was that a person who rents a property doesn't take ownership for much. Uh, they, they're used to picking up the phone if something's wrong and uh, calling the landlord. And unfortunately, when you're in the landlording business, which I wasn't, I just kind of inherited this mm-hmm. building, but, uh, you know, often your bottom line, you're always trying to tone down how much maintenance you're having to do at the very time when the maintenance is needed. And I once asked a banker why they escrowed for taxes and insurance, but didn't for rural people their biggest expenses is a new septic tank mm-hmm. or a new well. Why aren't they escrowing for that? And he said the government wouldn't let them. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't let them treat, you know. And, and I, I'm going to be honest. When, when I bought my first house, I didn't realize I had to water the lawn. That was part of the maintenance that nobody told me about. So I ended up with the only brown lawn in the neighborhood up in Montana because I didn't realize that was maintenance that was required. And I know that there are a lot of other things about owning a home that I didn't know until it was too late. And what can we do? I mean, this is kind of off topic a little bit, but is, isn't that one of the issues we have with poor housing? The, we try and provide something affordable to the poor, but they may not, if they're owning it, they may not understand that they have to budget for things like painting the house every five years and things like that. Well, uh, I certainly think that the, uh, we have some great resources in Minnesota through the Minnesota Home Ownership Center and a lot of home ownership counseling, Habitat are all across yes. Minnesota who do a lot of great work in ensuring that first-time and first-generation homeowners are prepared exactly for those kinds of things. So there are a lot of resources to help folks make sure that they can understand that. But to be clear, it is more cost of it costs less to own a home than it does to rent. And again, there is a there's quite a bit of research on how our lowest income families across America tend to pay a premium on rent because they can, because the owners can take advantage of them. And so I think that there's, um, there's a balance there. Right. That, that premium when you own the home is going into your bank account. In, in essence, but if you don't have, if you don't own the home, if you're a renter, then you're kind of at risk for subsidizing someone else's equity. Well, and there's lots of reasons I think that people rent at different points in their lives. I know right. my parents, for example, you know, they have sold their home and they rent uh, uh, an apartment now because they want to make sure that they have liquid assets as their needs may change. And they mm-hmm. want to make sure that for them, they don't want any of the upkeep of a home <laughs> because they're not at that point in their life. So there mm-hmm. are so many reasons why different families will make different choices of, on their housing. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that there's sort of like a good or a bad choice. There's just different choices for each family's needs. Indeed. 
Um, one more station break. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN, uh, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Bruce Moreland. My co-host is Joe Moravchik, and we are talking with Ann Mavity, Executive Director of the Minnesota Housing Partnership. So, I was going to say, and you just talked a minute ago about investors coming in from the coast or mm-hmm. Chicago area. Mm-hmm. We had a situation here in Northfield, Viking mm-hmm. Terrace, an area where there's manufactured homes, some mobile homes. Uh, investor comes in. The people own the mobile homes, but the investors come in and buy the property mm-hmm. underneath them. And this caused some conflict. Are you familiar with that scenario here? Um, I, I don't know every specific yeah. about Viking Terrace, but what I will say is that scenario with uh, manufactured home parks or trailer home parks um, is is happening across Minnesota and really across the region. And there's some great tools and strategies to help the owners of yeah. the homes, but not of the lands and the pads that those homes are on, um, to purchase that and actually okay. create um, collectively... And, and have there's lots of successful models for doing that that, again, helps, Bruce, to your point, about really helps folks be invested in all of their uh, community options. And certainly when you have an owner who's not on site and has less of a mission mm-hmm. to keep all those, uh, the infrastructure up to, spe- up to date and yeah. all of those investments, um, that can sometimes be a challenge with the folks who are living there who obviously want uh, quality housing. Yeah, and the concern was this out-of-state investor comes in, jacks up the the rent on the property, changes the rules to the park, right. and, and of they're course not we, invested here. Right, and we know these homes, even though we call them mobile home parks, they're not as mobile as we think, right? I mean, yes. these are communities, and they're neighborhoods, right. and uh, there's, there are families who have lived there for decades, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, so I think there's really exciting work to be done. I think that um, from a local level, there needs to be the right uh, uh, framework, regulatory framework and approvals and uh, perspective to say, yes, this is a valid, solid choice if we can make sure, right, that the quality can be maintained and those yes. residents can have a voice in really making sure that their homes are um are are an asset continue to be an asset for the community let's talk a little bit about let's build on that with manufactured mm-hmm. homes i s- lived for a bit out in northern new mexico where manufactured homes were just a part of the landscape there um, are there benefits to manufactured homes costs and such Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, what, what do they say? Like, this is not your grandpa's, you know, manufactured home, right? Like, like the technologies and innovations that we are seeing with factory built housing um, are extraordinary. And actually in Minnesota, which is so weather dependent for our construction season, to have housing built in a warehouse that can be uh, uh, built year round, Mm -hmm. not weather dependent uh, is such a advance and can really reduce a lot of these housing costs. So I think the continuum between manufactured home that comes fully built in and modular housing that you might use in a similar fashion for a multifamily kind of uh, 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 approach to housing can reduce the time 
the uh, efficiencies. We're seeing architects now trying to build around uh, that kind of predictable sizing to create cost efficiencies and construction timeline efficiencies to make sure that these are reducing the cost of housing. And I think I'm really excited about what that could mean for Minnesota and helping really scale and reduce costs, scale production and reduce costs. I know that Minnesotans like to think that mobile homes and, and manufactured homes aren't weather resistant to our tough winters, but they but that's not true anymore, is it? It's not true anymore. No, They're, it's absolutely not true anymore. Again, the technologies that we have today in doing this, in, and they're getting better all the time, right? Because we are literally in the last decade um, going leaps and bounds into this whole modular housing construction that's sort of done in the warehouse and then delivered to the site. Uh, so, yeah, there there's some really great innovations that I am very optimistic about. <laughs> have to throw a softball. I don't know what this is, but <laughs> what do you think about 3D printing of homes? Have you guys, have you been following I that s- at all? I think I saw a YouTube video about that. I It blows my mind a little bit, so I'm going to leave that to smarter okay. scientists to figure out. Yeah, sorry. No, it's all <laughs> it, good. It fit in there so well. Okay, Joe. Well, I was going to say, uh, seems like we we're just t- starting to touch on all the topics we want to talk about. <laughs> <more roads. laughs> Might have to have you back for a second show. But um, on our program, public policy this week, we use this as a license to let our guests use their expertise to give us some interesting policy-driven insights, like you have today. Um, let's talk a little bit more as we wrap up about the things going on in the state legislature and ideas you have to kind of conclude on how we solve this affordable housing issue that we have. Absolutely. Uh, At the state legislature, what I will say is, again, the legislative session ends on May 22nd. And so we are seeing right now the uh, housing issues are being resolved right now through conference committee. And we're very hopeful, again, to have really transformational investments in housing. A lot of those are one-time. And so at MHP, we're saying we have had a gap in production year over year over year for decades. And a one-time infusion will help dramatically, but it's not enough. We need that kind of uh, investment in the future, year over year over year. So we are looking for... Um, those kinds of long-term solutions that have dedicated permanent revenue that will um, really a market can rely upon to create more housing. But the other thing I just want to say is this, is um, I am encouraged to see that people's attitudes about housing are changing. We're fe- pe- you know, we understand housing. It is an asset for our communities. It is an asset for our businesses who are trying to attract workers. It's an asset for health care. Yeah, we recently had a, a, a column written by a bunch of health care leaders saying housing is the prescription for what ails us because it is so fundamental to healthy outcomes, for educational outcomes. So we know that the upside of this squeeze of the housing supply is that more people are understanding how important it is, and we need solutions. One of the things I think is important at the local level for everyone to understand um, is that folks often say um, when a new housing development is proposed, 
there's almost always some resistance. And what I would say is 50, I don't know how old all your houses are, but 50 years ago or 60 years ago, if people had said that, you might not have a home to live in right now. And we, we know that communities are always changing and growing, and we have a growing population that we need to uh, make sure have housing options as well. And so understanding that our community won't look exactly like it does today in 50 years because it didn't 50 years ago, right? <laughs> and so we need to say yes to housing and yes to housing options so our kids and our grandparents and the folks taking care of my mom today, maybe your kids, that they all have housing options available. And how can we do that and embrace it, not in us versus them, but something we all need um, and need to invest in. And where can our listeners find out about more about the Minnesota Housing Partnership online? Yeah, absolutely. So our website is mhponline.org. We created that about 30 years ago. Uh, and uh, again, we have lots of, go to our research page. You can get key facts on housing in Minnesota. You can get it for your own county. Yeah, lots of information and data there. And if you want to get involved, yeah, there's also clicks in our policy and advocacy uh, links there to get involved in having a voice because we all have a housing story to tell. Everyone, it's because you have great housing or you haven't had access to great housing, you have a housing story and we want to help you tell it. It's been a great program. Very interesting, important conversation. Uh, Rich, we didn't have enough time today. We're going to have to bring Ann back. <laughs> we got to end our program right here. Okay, I'm Bruce Moreland. My co-host today has been Joe Moravchik and Ann Mavidi. Thank you for taking time to come down here from your busy schedule and share your wisdom and experience with us on this important topic of affordable housing. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. This concludes this edition of our program. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, FM 95.1, each Friday morning from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. And be sure to join us next Friday for another edition of Public Policy This Week. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon and a superb weekend, and take care, everyone. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in 